Good evening. My name is Dan Peek. Welcome to the WDRT Monthly Review, a look back at this past month's news stories for July 2022. We hope you will offer your feedback by emailing monthly review at WDRT.org. I am recording in the studio at the Mead Public Library, Sheboygan, Wisconsin, 24 hours ahead of broadcast. Based on economic and legislative news from Wednesday night, I changed the lead report, a rare moment of a glint of light in the tunnel. A potential breakthrough, U.S. Senator Joe Manchin, Democrat West Virginia, and Majority Leader Chuck Schumer, Democrat New York, have announced a deal on a tax, energy, and climate bill breaking a deadlock on the Democrats' long-sought legislation to enact major parts of the Biden agenda. The plan would generate an estimated $739 billion in revenue, spend $433 billion, and reduce deficits by $300 billion over a decade. The Inflation Reduction Act of 2022 it includes climate spending, a 15% corporate minimum tax, prescription drug pricing reform, and more tax enforcement. Apparently, even Larry Summers likes it. Manchin wrote, tax fairness is vital to our nation's economic future, and it is wrong that some America's largest companies pay nothing in taxes while freely enjoying the benefits of our nation's military, security, infrastructure, and rule of law. It is common sense that a domestic corporate minimum tax of 15% be applied to billion-dollar companies or larger, ensuring that America's largest businesses are no longer able to operate for free in our economy. And there are no new taxes on households earning less than $400,000 a year. Remember, reconciliation can pass with 50 votes, so how goes Senator Sinema, Democrat, Arizona? The legislative breakthrough was announced following passage of the Creating Helpful Incentives to Produce Semiconductors, CHIPS, bill, which appropriates $280 billion to speed up the manufacturing of semiconductors in the U.S. Senator Minority Leader Mitch McConnell, Republican Kentucky, had threatened to sink the CHIPS bill if Democrats loaded up the budget reconciliation package. Republican senators did kill the promise to address Comprehensive Toxics Pact Act, which would have provided medical benefits for veterans exposed to burn pits and toxins during military service. I am breaking my own rule because it ain't passed yet. Gross domestic product, GDP, dropped by 0.2% for quarter two, technically a recession. The Fed raised interest rates by 0.75 points for a second month in a row, but for now, unemployment holds steady at 3.6%, meaning economic concerns, but not alarm bells. There are dim sighs of relief, and expect much Republican public hand-wringing to follow with all of this. Turning to the farther-reaching news, is the United States becoming, again, the red states and blue states? Is the United States becoming a white Christian United States or even a white Christian nationalist United States? Is the United States becoming a country where middle class is beyond reach? Taking the question of middle class first, I turn to New York Times opinion columnist Ezra Klein, Klein starts by acknowledging the July report of a 9.1% inflation rate, the highest since 1981, and quickly investigates and discards the idea of light beginning to glint into the tunnel. His glint was built on the back of falling oil and commodity prices, but also a pause in wage growth and signs of a slowing overheated economy economic activity because of growing inventories. Klein turns to a February 2020 piece from The Atlantic's uh, Ann Lowry noting this. One of the best decades of the American economy has ever recorded, families were bled dry by landlords, hospital administrators, university bursars, and child care centers. For millions, a roaring economy felt precarious or downright terrible. Klein notes, Lowry's framing has stuck in my mind over the last couple of years. I don't think you can understand the broader price crisis without it. 
Here's the crux of the affordability crisis in clients' words. The numbers are startling. The median home price in 1950 was 2.2 times the average annual income. By 2020, it was six times average annual income. Parents' average child care spending per child grew by about 200% from 1972 to 2007. Family premiums for employer-based health care jumped by 47% between 2011 and 2021, and deductibles and out-of-pocket costs shot up by almost 70%. The average price for brand-name drugs on Medicare Part D rose by 236% between 2009 and 2018. Between 1980 and 2018, the average cost of an undergraduate education rose by 169%. We papered over the affordability crisis with lower prices for consumer goods, soaring asset values that kept richer Americans happy, subsidies for some Americans at certain times, and mountains of debt, housing debt, student loan debt, medical debt that kept the working class semi-afloat. But none of this addressed the core problem. The prices of things we need most have been growing far faster than inflation. The trappings of middle class were available to all, but middle class success was not his example. In the 1960s, it was possible to attend a four-year college debt-free, but impossible to purchase a flat-screen television. By 2020s, the reality was close to the reverse. Right now, we are stuck. Klein offers an example. Drug prices are high because Republicans support expansive patent protections, but won't let the government use its purchasing power to bargain down prices, which is how virtually every other rich nation holds down costs. We're granting monopolies on one end and refusing to use purchasing power on the other. Real policy changes are tough. Klein notes one novel idea. Gavin Newsom, the Democratic governor of uh, California, just announced the state has set aside $100 million to begin making its own low-cost insulin. If it works, it could become a national model, which feels like a great lead-in to the question of red versus blue. Newsom's act might be an option in California, but in Texas or nationally? So are we the blue states and the red states? Ronald Brownstein, writing for CNN, offers this characterization. Red states, supported by Republican-appointed judges, are engaging in multi-front offensive to seize control of the national policy, even while Democrats hold the White House and nominally control both the House and the Senate. The red states are moving social policies sharply to the right within their borders or on issues from abortion to LGBTQ rights and classroom censorship while simultaneously working to hobble the ability of either the federal government or their own largest metro areas to set a different course. To a degree unimaginable even a decade ago, this broad offensive looks increasingly like an effort to define a nation within a nation, one operating with a set of rules and policies that diverge from the rest of America more than in almost any previous era. Brownstein offers a summary of our multi-front war. The elements of the red state offensive include a flurry of lawsuits seeking to block actions from Biden's administration on issues from the environment to civil rights to immigration. Other lawsuits, such as the case around a Mississippi law that prompted the Supreme Court to overturn the right to abortion, aimed at providing states more leeway to deviate from previously nationally guaranteed rights. A flurry of red state laws that advance the cultural priorities of the GOP's predominantly white Christian electoral base and a steady flow of red state statutes blocking Democratic-leaning large cities and counties from setting their own policies on everything from police budgets to recycling. To a far greater extent than in earlier generations, control of state governments now aligns with states' preferences in presidential elections. Republicans now control both chambers of the state legislature and all of the 25 states that voted two times for Trump, except for Nebraska, which has a 
unicameral nonpartisan legislature. Republicans also control the governorship in 21 of the two-time Trump states, all but Louisiana, Kansas, Kentucky, and North Carolina. Of the 25 states that voted for Trump, 19 have already moved to restrict abortion access since the Supreme Court last month struck down Roe v. Wade, according to the Guttmacher Institute, an abortion rights think tank that tracks state policy. Four other two-time Trump states are considered likely to also restrict abortion in the coming months with Indiana beginning a special session and uh, that could pass new limits, and Kansas voters deciding soon on a constitutional amendment that could open the door to future restrictions. But what about blue states? Blue states such as California, New York, Illinois, and Colorado have moved forcefully over the past two years to expand many of the liberties now under siege in the red states. But congressional Republicans, while in a minority, have already introduced proposals that would apply to the red state rules across the entire nation on many of these same issues. Democratic Governor Roy Cooper of North Carolina offered this. Right-wing culture wars are now taking on even more significance because the Supreme Court has tossed what were once protected constitutional rights into the political battlefield. Cooper, who chairs the Democratic Governors Association, told me in an interview, a zip code should not determine a woman's reproductive rights. That's right where we are now. Likely you caught the acknowledgement of U.S. Supreme Court in Christianity. Pamela Paul, New York Times opinion columnist, speaks to the intersection of these two points, this court and Christianity, by reviewing one of the many horribly wrong SCOTUS decisions of this past month. Paul offers that naming the single worst decision of the SCOTUS 2021-22 term is tough, but she puts forward her nomination. Not the worst with immediate broad impact, but the most convoluted, egregious, as in contrary to the intent of our founding fathers so reverentially put forward by this conservative court majority in the name of St. Justice Scalia. I share her words because I agree. In her words, imagine your boss fervently proclaiming his religious beliefs at the end of a company-wide meeting, inviting everyone on the team who shares those beliefs to join in. You're surrounded by colleagues and other higher-ups. Everyone is watching to see who participates and who holds back, knowing that whatever each of you does could make or break your job and even your career, whether you share his convictions or not. That's what Joseph Kennedy, a former assistant coach in Kitsap County, Washington, did with his team. Only he did it with the public school students at a high school football game when the superintendent made clear that by actively inviting players to join him at the 50-yard line for post-game Christian prayers, he was violating school policy and, by the way, the Constitution's Establishment Clause. Kennedy took to the media, turning a small town's school's sporting event into a three-wing circus, an ugly social media uh, sideshow with students effectively forced to perform or suffer the consequences. Overturning precedent and in a cynical elision of act, Justice Neil Gorsuch, writing for a 6-3 majority, affirmed Kennedy's assertion that his proselytizing on government property during a public school function was private, personal, and quiet. It was nothing of the kind. An easily observable fact, Kennedy's religious display was public, vocal, and coercive, as demonstrated by testimony from football players and other community members by video, photographs of the coach surrounded by crowds of people on bent knee. But this court's right-wing majority is following the dictum of Trumpian age. Objective truth doesn't matter. Subjective belief, specifically the beliefs of the court's religious right majority, does. The Kennedy decision wasn't based on the facts, but on the belief of the face of facts. 
Moreover, those six justices are determined to voice their beliefs on the rest of the country. In allowing for greater religious expression, the court curtailed the liberty of those whose prayers take other forms, Americans who practice non-Christian faiths and people who do not practice religion at all. Kitsap County is home to a variety of religions, including Judaism, Islam, Sikhism, Hinduism, and Baha'ism. A coach-led Christian prayer on the playing field is necessarily exclusionary. Paul relates this from Daniel Mack, director of ACLU's program on freedom of religion and belief. Kennedy versus Bremerton opens the door for so much more governmental promotion of religion and a great deal of religious favoritism by government officials. Such intolerance mirrors the strong-arming intentions of the Supreme Court's conservative majority. Unhappy with what much of the country believes, the court's right wing chooses to believe what it would like and foists the results on the rest of us. Just like Coach Kennedy, they're out to proselytize. Apply Paul's warning to any of the SCOTUS rulings. Jill Abramson, former executive director of the New York Times for the Financial Times, summarized this way, starting with her headline, In the ultimate coup for the right, it's Justice Thomas's Supreme Court now. Her words, the U.S. Supreme Court has suddenly lurched to the extreme right, the stunning transformation of the country's third branch of government, which the founders famously called the least dangerous branch, now seems anything but. Instead, with its new 6-3 conservative majority, the court, which usually moves in a slow and staid manner, has staked out radical positions on crucial issues such as abortion, guns, religion, environmental protections that are far, far more conservative than the rest of the country. Although he only wrote the decision in the ruling on guns, these contentious cases bear the hallmark of one justice, Clarence Thomas. Abramson concludes her remarks with this. Thomas is no longer the quiet backbencher he was. At the end of June, for example, he wrote a dissenting opinion where the court declined to hear a case challenging New York's COVID vaccine mandate for health professionals. Thomas said healthcare workers should be able to refuse vaccination on the grounds of religious liberty because the COVID vaccines were developed using the cells of aborted fetuses, an assertion that is false. But Thomas's dissent was another vivid example of how dangerous the third branch has become. What other damage did the Supreme Court inflict? In addition to overturning the constitutional right to an abortion established by Roe v. Wade in 1973 and school prayer deciding a football coach has a constitutional right to pray after his team's games, we have climate change. The court curtailed the EPA's ability to regulate the energy sector. Native Americans, the court ruled that so much of Oklahoma falls within India reservations, the state authorities may prosecute non-Indians who commit crimes against Indians on those reservations. Gun rights, the court ruled that states with strict limits on carrying guns in public violated the Second Amendment. The court ruled that a main program that excludes religious schools from a tuition program is a violation of the free exercise of religion. COVID, the court ruled the Biden administration's vaccine or testing mandate for large employers was not lawful, though the Biden administration's mandate to require health care workers at facilities receiving federal money to be vaccinated was lawful. I skipped one or two, but the court did agree that Trump could not block the release of White House records to a House committee investigating the January 6th attack on the Capitol. The lone dissenting vote was from Justice Thomas, where his wife, Ginny, might be implicated. Ginny Thomas is in discussion with the January 6th commission to be questioned about her role in the buildup to the attack and her messaging to overturn an election and seat Trump at all costs following the violent insurrection. For Wisconsin... Access to abortion will be decided over the validity of a 173-year-old law which blocked abortion except to save a mother's life with no exceptions for rape or incest. Wisconsin Republican gubernatorial candidates all endorsed the law. Governor Evers and Attorney General Josh Call 
both Democrats, who is also seeking re-election, announced a lawsuit this week to block enforcement of the ban, arguing that a 173-year-old law was fallen into, has fallen into disuse and that more recent legislation barring abortion after the point of a fetal viability should take precedence. At a news conference recently, Evers emphasized that the old law was passed decades before women got the right to vote. Our Senator Ron Johnson praised the court ruling as a victory for life. Let's look at Wisconsin voting. Republicans in Wisconsin are leading the national effort to take control of election administration and make it harder to vote. Dan Kaufman wrote, Will Wisconsin's Republicans make voting meaningless or just difficult for the New Yorker? The subhead, activists are combining voter suppression with election conspiracies to capture the state in 2022 and beyond. Kaufman notes, Election administration has become the most prominent issue in the upcoming Wisconsin governor's race in which Democratic incumbent Tony Evers will face one of three leading Republicans after an August primary. The stakes are heightened by the Wisconsin's role as the most pivotal swing state in 2016 and 2020. The presidential election came down to three states and only Wisconsin appeared on that list both times. None of the Republican Party's gubernatorial candidates will say that Joe Biden won the election, and all of them have vowed to abolish the Wisconsin Elections Commission, which was created by a Republican-controlled legislature in 2015. This idea has been promoted by Wisconsin's U.S. Senator Ron Johnson, who met privately with Voss and other Republicans last November after suggesting to the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel that the legislature simply take over the elections. I would say... We're claiming our authority, he said. Don't listen to WEC anymore. Their guidances are null and void. Approximately 3.3 million ballots were cast in the 2020 election in Wisconsin, and Joe Biden defeated Donald Trump by nearly 21,000 votes. To date, according to the Associated Press, only 24 people have been charged with voter fraud. Neither state nor independent reviews found evidence of widespread fraud. More than 10 lawsuits filed by Trump and his allies were dismissed by various courts and recounts in Dane and Milwaukee counties, the state's two most populous counties, and the only ones where Trump campaign requested recounts confirmed Biden's victory. And yet conspiracy theories about the election continue to circulate, fueled in large part by Republican politicians and party officials. The Wisconsin Supreme Court has played a role in undermining Democratic norms. In July, the court upheld a ban on nearly all drop boxes and barred voters from entrusting anyone, including family members, to submit their ballots. A day after the ruling, Trump hailed the amazing Wisconsin Supreme Court decision. Christine Cochran, who has multiple sclerosis and relies on her husband to return her ballot because she is mostly bedridden, was crushed. This will be devastating to me and to thousands of people, she said. Fun fact, I learned from the New Yorker article, Tim Michaels, the Trump-endorsed candidate for Wisconsin governor, owns a $17 million mansion in Connecticut in a penthouse on the Upper East Side of Manhattan and has drawn scrutiny over his claim of Wisconsin residency. The right-wing Supreme Court rulings were the top story, but another story with breaking news competes for importance. The House Select Committee on January 6th attack on the Capitol to overturn a fair election has been airing hearings through the month of July, with a, with the final two-and-a-half-hour hearing aired in primetime last week. The culmination of the hearing was focused on Trump. The hearings showed Trump's sprawling act of sedition, if not treason, the many parts, the many players, and the near success. After directing his mob to walk to the Capitol to pressure Congress, some of whom were armed, Trump sat in front of a Fox News broadcast in his private dining room, resisting all pressure to call off the violence. 
It is hard in limited space to convey the seriousness, but here is an example. In the case of armed Trump supporters, there was this exchange after Trump learned the attendees were being burned away from his rally because screening identified weapons. I don't effing care that they have weapons. They're not here to hurt me, Trump said. According to the testimony of Cassidy Hutchinson, an aide and assistant to Trump's former chief of staff, Mark Meadows. The timing of Cassidy's committee appearance and her subsequent choice to go into hiding were the result of the many threats made against her. That example is symbolic of Trump's role in planning, exhorting and uh, the mob and sitting back to watch, summarized by the Wall Street Journal with, no matter your views on the January 6th special committee, the facts it is laying out in the hearings are sobering. The most horrifying to date came Thursday in a hearing on President Trump's conduct as the riot raged and he sat watching TV, posting inflammatory tweets and refusing to send help. The New York Times summarized this way. Through a range of witness testimonies, the committee demonstrated that Mr. Trump never reached out to the heads of any law enforcement, national security department or agency in the government to seek help in responding to quell the violence. Fox News footage, which Mr. Trump was watching from his dining room, showed how the Capitol Police were under siege, massively outmanned, and struggling to repel the crowd, but the president remained unmoved. Biden said, The brave women and men in blue all across this nation should never forget that. You can't be pro-insurrection and pro-cop. You can't be pro-insurrection and pro-democracy. You can't be pro-insurrection and pro-American. But will anything happen? There is this encouraging headline this week from the Washington Post. Justice Department investigating Trump's actions in January 6th criminal probe with a subhead of people familiar with the probe said that investigators are examining the former president's conversations and have seized phone records of top aides. If so, the hearings have moved the needle with the Justice Department and caused the softening of support among Trumpsters. Attorney General Merrick Garland has vowed that the January 6th investigation will follow the facts wherever they lead and said that no one is exempt or above scrutiny while refusing to divulge information outside of court filings. I will leave this here with one final point, another news break afforded headlines. Kind of wild, creative, emails shed light on Trump fake electors plan. Subhead, previously undisclosed communication among Trump campaign aides and outside advisors provide new insights into their efforts to overturn the election in the weeks leading to January 6th. I mentioned this harm of Trump's efforts to overturn the election by feeding Vice President Pence fake alternative ballots from key uh, states to have Pence throw the decisions back to the states in question. Well, not further implicated in this breaking news, our Senator Ron Johnson was in the news this month again with new clarity with his role in trying to hand off documents falsely stating Trump won the Wisconsin election to Pence just prior to the electoral count in Congress. The Wisconsin document signed by 10 Republicans who convened in the state capitol on December 14, 2020, was filled out on the same day the Democratic state of Wisconsin electors met in the same building to deliver the state's 10 electoral votes to President-elect Joe Biden. The meeting of the Republicans occurred after the Wisconsin Supreme Court ruled Biden had won the election. We need to get a document to the Wisconsin electors to you for VP immediately, former Dane County Circuit Court Judge Jim Troopas told Johnson at 11.36 a.m. January 6, 2021, according to the text provided to conservative media outlet Just the News. Is there a staff person I can talk to immediately? Thanks, Jim T., Six minutes later, screenshots of the text messages showed Johnson connected his chief of staff, Sean Riley, with Troopas in the text chain. 
An hour after Johnson referred Troopas to Riley, Riley sought the assistance of a Pence aide in passing the document and another falsely asserting Trump won Michigan to the vice president, but was rebuffed. The smoking gun. Johnson has lied to us. He knew where the documents came from. He knew why, and he played a direct role in trying to get the Wisconsin document to Pence to undo a valid election and keep Trump in the White House. The planners of this leg of the overthrow commonly refer to these as fake ballots. Our Senator Ron Johnson is one of the many that failed to uphold their oath of office, and he should not be rewarded by winning re-election. Another month, more mass shootings. Consider this against the SCOTUS ruling to undo gun restrictions in New York. This paragraph from history professor and blogger Heather Cox Richardson captures the moment for July. Police have detained a person of interest over shooting at a July 4th parade in affluent suburb of Chicago that left six people dead and dozens more injured. The latest mass shooting in a country reeling from attacks at schools, stores, and other public spaces. The shooter aimed from a rooftop in downtown Highland Park, a town on the north shore of Lake Michigan, about 30 miles from Chicago's central business district. The attack followed a string of mass shootings in the U.S., including the assault in May, at an elementary school in Uvalde, Texas, by an 18-year-old man who killed 19 pupils and two teachers. An 18-year-old white supremacist was accused of gunning down 10 black patrons at a supermarket in Buffalo, New York, using an assault rifle earlier that month. The Highland Park shooter was arrested on his way to Madison, Wisconsin, to repeat his assault. One final sobering note, there are 22 majority black districts in the current U.S. Congress. Next year, there will be as few as nine. The law seats are a casualty of wildly politicized redistricting with state-by-state showdowns, bringing dramatic changes to electoral maps that were already being reshaped by demographic forces. In conclusion, you can't be pro-cop and pro-insurrection. You can't be pro-veteran and anti-health for veterans. You can't be pro-Constitution and strip away individual rights. A glint of light in a dark tunnel? We'll see. Thank you for listening.